0: From Interfaith Alliance, this is State of Belief Radio. I'm your host, Reverend Welton Gaddy, broadcasting this week from Monroe, Louisiana.
1: Now, wait a minute, let me be clear, your son is in kindergarten, and he was given a book about homosexuality and marriage?
2: I think some of the most dangerous people in America are trans terrorists, because these are the people that want to groom your children and and talk them into changing their gender. The
1: Don't Say Gay Bill, officially called the Parental Rights in Education Bill. Critics warn this will prevent teachers and schools from helping children who feel bullied or ostracized and have nowhere to turn.
2: There isn't just the Florida Don't Say Gay Bill. Republicans are trying to make 2022 the year of the anti-trans bill. So far, over a dozen states are considering
3: anti LGBTQ laws.
0: For the LGBTQI persons in this country, for most of history, uh, there was invisibility and secrecy. Then came courageous steps into the open and scattered instances of legal protections. Public acceptance and support grew quickly and Marriage equality became the law of the land. Looking at the polling, most Americans feel we're getting close to how things ought to be. But for the relentless right wing empowered by and ensnared in the authoritarian dreams of political religious right, nothing could be further from the truth. Different strains of these hate mongers call for different ways to deal with the quote-unquote problem, banning speech supportive of LGBTQI identity and equality, criminalizing essential medical care, denying adoption and other family rights rights and sometimes even calling for imprisonment and even execution of queer people. And while these political attacks keep coming, disproportionate numbers of young LGBT people are driven from their homes by misguided parents, beaten and killed in our streets, and dying by suicide. Were any other issue having this impact on young people in this country, born or unborn, most churches would be rallying to lend support. Sadly, we see far too many religious bodies contributing to the problem instead of to the solution. June is traditionally celebrated as Pride Month. And here on State of Belief, we're going to spend some time this month focusing on ways religious and other people of goodwill are working desperately to counter the crass attack on our LGBTQI siblings for political gain. A few weeks ago, you heard about the ambitious Faith for Pride campaign from Interfaith Alliance and its partners. Today, we'll get details about how one participating organization, Gachette, is bringing inclusivity to the fore, and not in spite of, but because of, deeply held religious convictions. Meanwhile, this kind of organizing is only possible today due to the incredible courage of earlier activists. And we'll revisit a 2019 Pride Month conversation that I was privileged to have with a dear friend, Right Reverend Gene Robinson, the first openly gay man elected as bishop in the Episcopal Church.
2: Recent statements by the
4: head of the Orthodox Church, Russian patriarch Kirill, openly supported Moscow's invasion. This has splintered the worldwide Orthodox Church and is raising fears
0: of religious strife. The ongoing unprovoked invasion of Ukraine continues to have holy war overtones in Russia and continues to dismantle centuries-old alliances in the Orthodox Christian Church. We'll get an update from Religion Dispatches and historian Katie Kalaitis.
1: I'm Ray Kirstein at the intersection of religion, government, and changing times. Minneapolis has become the first large American city to permit the Muslim call to prayer over loudspeakers from its two dozen mosques. The practice began in the city during Ramadan of 2020, early in the COVID lockdown, with speakers provided by a nightclub made famous by the late musician Prince. A Lutheran pastor near one of the mosques expressed appreciation for the call to prayer, saying it reminds her that God is bigger than we know. A new Gallup poll shows public support for marriage equality continues to grow in this country. 2011 was the first time a majority of American adults were in favor. Three years ago, it was 63% who gave the thumbs up. This year, that number is up to 71%. And nobody in Pennsylvania screamed louder that the 2020 election was stolen than State Senator Doug Mastriano. No surprise, then, that the QAnon-aligned Christian nationalist-endorsed multiple anti-election prayer call hosting conspiracy theorist is the Republican nominee for governor.
0: Our program airs every weekend on radio stations nationwide and is available as a podcast on iTunes and other leading podcast platforms. I urge you to subscribe to it today. State of Belief Radio is made possible in great part by the generous support of our listeners. If you've made a donation this week, please know how grateful we are. Thank you. If you haven't pitched in yet, information on how you can help keep this show on the air is available at stateofbelief.com. That's stateofbelief.com. And now, to our first guest. As Pride Month gets underway with uh, unprecedented organized attempts to roll back uh, progress made by LGBTQI plus Americans and enshrine exclusionary and destructive policies into law, always under the guise of religion, the Faith for Pride campaign rolls out to raise up religiously motivated acts of inclusivity and love. There's complete information on what's being done and what groups are taking part at www.faithforpride.org. And one of the prominent organizations involved is Kashet Working for Full Inclusion of LGBTQI Plus persons and families in Jewish life. Shannon Saul is community mobilization manager at Kachet, and I am happy to have her with us today on State of Belief Radio. Shannon, welcome.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Why was it so important for Kashit to be part of Faith for Pride?
3: Yeah, um, well, As you said, too often, the arguments on the other side of this, um, the arguments that are trying to um, not let people live their lives authentically and not let people love who they love are made in the name of religion. And um, we know that actually the vast majority of people of faith, 69 percent of them, support um, non-discrimination protections against LGBTQ folks. And um, so it was really important for Keshet and the other organizations that we partnered with to make sure that we make a statement this pride month that um, you can't use religion to discriminate anymore. That's, that's not a valid argument.
0: Would you talk about how you see Jewish tradition calling uh, for this kind of inclusivity?
3: Yes, absolutely. Um, So We have several Jewish values that really um, tell us that we need to be not only inclusive, but taking action for equality. Um, So the first would be B'Tselem Elohim, which is in the eyes of God. And um, we, in the Jewish faith, believe that all are created in the image of the divine, and that includes LGBTQ folks. Um, And so that means that we not only treat them with respect, but we treat them as also um, part of the divine image. Um, We also have beliefs um, in Judaism of pikuach nefesh, which means protecting life above all else. And we know that doing something as simple as respecting someone's pronouns or giving um, a trans youth access to gender affirming care can save their life. Um, access to gender-affirming care can reduce the risk of suicide for trans youth by 60%. Um, so that's another big Jewish value of ours. We also have values of communal responsibility and being in solidarity with one another um, and tikkun olam or repairing the world. So all of those values together mean that we not only are inclusive and respectful and um, see the dignity in LGBTQ folks, but that we also um, push and take action because our faith calls us to, to make um, a more equal world.
0: Hmm. What uh, specific event or events uh, are you organizing to uh, raise up uh, Faith for Pride within the Cachette community?
3: Yes, that's a great question. Um, so if you go to um faithforpride.org, like you mentioned, um you will see events happening all across the country this month. Um, and Kesha is hosting um, several of those. Um, one uh, major one is on uh June 14th at um 7:30 p.m. Eastern time. um, We are hosting, co-hosting with the Women of Reform Judaism and um, the Religious Action Center on Reformed Judaism, an event on active allyship. So um, showing how to um, show up against the legislation that's been passing across the country that's so hateful. And we'll have a panel of um, three trans folks in the Jewish community talking about their lived experiences. Um, But like I said, on this map, on our website, you can find events at the national level that are virtual um, and also events near you. Hmm.
0: Anti-Semitic acts, uh, we know, have been on the rise at the same time Mm -hmm. as we see anti-LGBT sentiment growing uh mm-hmm. would you talk about the the challenges of working at the intersection of of both of those identities
3: yeah you know i actually see working at the intersection of both of those inter- uh identities as actually a blessing rather than a challenge um you know obviously having both of those identities personally and working with other folks who do can present a danger because of the rising hate but i really see working in the Jewish community is a blessing because Jews know what it's like to be the outsider and Jews know what it's like to face this kind of hate and discrimination. So it's really not hard to have empathy for the LGBTQ community. Um, And then also, I think also we've seen such similar rhetoric. We've seen rhetoric that accuses Jews of being pedophiles or grooming children, and that is the same rhetoric that we now see um, deployed against the LGBTQ community. So we really have a lot in common, um, and it makes it um, really easy for us to stand in solidarity.
0: Hmm. There is uh, effective fear-mongering spewing from the political religious Mm -hmm. right that uh, paints LGBTQI plus persons as predators, uh, groomers, Mm -hmm. And uh, godless, uh, heathenist. Um, it, it's one thing for you or for me uh, to understand how preposterous that propaganda is, but it's uh, it, it's quite another thing to make effective uh, counter arguments. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are some more effective ways to uh, win over hearts and minds, in your experience?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. I think for me, I always try to bring it back to the human level. I think that it's really easy to get lost in the the culture wars that the the right, the religious right, is trying to engage in, um, and rather than kind of playing their game, bringing it back to the human values of dignity and respecting life um, and wanting people to live as their authentic selves um, and wanting ultimately comes down to saving lives. We know that treating LGBTQ people with respect does save their lives um, and whether it's religious people who all share religious values of dignity, respect um, Loving one's neighbor as oneself, all of those things, um, or someone who's not religious, just having human values um, of respect and dignity. I think that bringing it down to the human level, to the individual level, and also when someone knows someone who's LGBTQ, or you can tell them about a friend that you have that's LGBTQ, it brings it a lot more personal rather than talking points that someone heard on a radio show or on TV. Mm.
0: Are you hopeful about the prospects of reversing the anti-LGBTQI plus flood of policy making and hateful rhetoric uh in in the months uh and years ahead?
3: Um I will say yes and no to that question. I think that um I definitely think I'm a realist, and so I recognize what we're up against. And at the same time, I have witness the power of um, people coming together to fight for LGBTQ rights and especially the divine power that comes when religious folks do that. Um, And, you know, I've talked to legislators and policymakers who hear from a rabbi or hear from a pastor about how they're respecting LGBTQ folks in their community and their perspective changes. Um, So while they're sure there's an uphill battle right now with the attacks happening across the country. I do have hope. um, And I think that it's really important that folks stay involved, because the more that policymakers hear those things, um, the less likely they are to continue these absurd, hateful um, attacks. Mm -hmm. I hope that people continue this conversation and this fight outside of Pride Month. Um, Working in a position where we're doing LGBTQ rights all the time. We always get tons of requests leading up to pride month, which makes sense. And I'm glad that people are doing that. And once June ends, there's still so much fight left. Um, And so I would love for folks to continue Being advocates, whether that's in your small community, whether that's respecting a friend's preferred pronouns, whether that's um, talking to your local church about having gender-neutral bathrooms or calling a representative, there are so many different levels at which folks can take action, and I think it's really important that we do that year-round.
0: Would you also, while you're with us, uh, talk about some of the other initiatives that Keshat has uh, underway?
3: Yes, absolutely. So um, Keshet has three major programs. So um, we're the nation's leading LGBTQ Jewish organization, as you mentioned, and one of our programs is education and training. So we go to um, Jewish communities and organizations across the country and provide them with um, training and education on how to be inclusive of LGBTQ community members. We also have a youth team that works with LGBTQ uh, Jewish youth to provide um, spaces for them to um, be authentic with one another and to um, take action if that's how they feel empowered. And then um, where I fit into um, Keshet's program team is I'm a part of our community mobilization team. So we are doing the advocacy, the um, legislative efforts, getting people to call and meet with their representatives, that kind of stuff. Um, But if you go to keshetonline.org, you can see all of Keshet's efforts um, and our upcoming events as well. How
0: can our listeners learn more about the work of uh, KesheT and how can they support the organization?
3: KesheT's website is keshetonline.org. That's k e s h e t onlineorg And folks can sign up for our email list there, see all of our events that we have going on. We also have lots of resources on that website for um, how to see inclusion and taking action through um, a religious lens. Um, But also folks are welcome to reach out to me um, my email is shannon.saul@keshetonline.org, at KeshetOnline.org. Um, and feel free to um, ask me about anything you find on our website or anything I said today.
0: Shannon Saul is a community mobilization manager of Keshet, uh, which works for the full equality of all LGBTQ Jews and families in Jewish life Find out more at cachetteonline.org, and get complete information on uh, Faith for Pride at faithforpride.org. Shannon, uh, thank you so much for what you are doing, and uh, thank you also for being with us today on uh, State of Belief Radio.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: We're just getting started on this week's show. Up next, powerful words for Pride Month from the Right Reverend Bishop Gene Robinson. And later, religion and war in Ukraine. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I'm Welton Gaddy. As the first openly gay man appointed bishop in the Episcopal Church, the Right Reverend Gene Robinson inhabits a unique place in history and at the intersection of LGBTQI plus identity and religion. I'd like to go back now to a conversation Gene and I had in June of 2019 as we looked at the challenges and opportunities facing us that summer. Does it feel to you like things have gotten even worse?
4: Yeah, I think there's no question about that. Uh, But I I would remind us that they're worse for everybody, right? Not just for LGBTQ people. Um, I, I would say that one of the most frightening things about what we're experiencing is that for every uh, pullback or uh, uh, defeat that we know about, there are 10 or 20 that are happening just below the surface. And we almost uh, only discover them when we trip over them. Hmm. Um, So here's the challenge, I think. You know, for the last well, really 50 years, the, uh, the LGBTQ movement has uh, been working for its own place in society, mm-hmm. uh, inclusion of all different kinds and, and, uh, and respect. Uh, before, before this present administration came in, I would have said that our greatest challenge uh, was in completing the movement. That is to say, if you live in, on one of the coasts uh, or in a, a large city, once we got marriage equality, we were all set. Mm-hmm. But for more than half of the country, you can still be fired for being gay. You can still be denied a hotel room. You, you can be uh, refused service at a restaurant. I mean, it's just astounding. And most people in America would tell you, surely that couldn't be true. But in in 29 states, that's the case. So yeah. so. But, so, but so, now we have to worry about... More people, right, yes, because when we see how immigrants are being treated, by the way, some of whom are gay, yes, uh, when we see how Muslims are being treated, when we see all of the vulnerable populations uh, re- att- attacked i don't think there's any um, any less strong word that will that will work um, then it, it's time for us to at least for now stop. Uh, thinking solely about our own rights and start standing up for other people. Because, um, you know, while their oppression, whether you're African American or Muslim or whatever, their oppression is different than ours. I like to say uh, they rhyme, right? Because oppression works the same. The dynamics are the same uh, for whatever kind of oppression you're looking at. So it's time that we Uh, broaden uh, our concern.
0: The motivation for uh, some of the arbitrary policies that we've been seeing uh, may be political, but the damage is psychological and even spiritual. Where do you see the most severe impact playing out?
4: At the moment, I would say in the transgender community uh, for us. Uh, The, the, the effect, the political effect of uh, the LGBTQ movement, uh, largely frankly centered here at the Human Rights Campaign, has been that that we have emerged as a very um, uh, powerful uh, minority. And And as we've seen in the evangelical community, they know they lost the gay thing, right? So now they're turning their sights on the transgender community, both to raise money and to just keep their base uh, kind of ginned up. And uh, the most uh, uh, tangible uh, thing that has happened, of course, is uh, declaring that um, transgender people cannot serve in the military. After we won that that with uh, President Obama, when you're not allowed to serve your country, it it says something about respect, how how you are regarded by the society in which you live. I mean, I always like to say Aretha Franklin got it right: R E S P E C T. Right? Uh, it's it's about respect. It's not that that we all want to serve in the military, but we want to have the right to serve in the military because it's one of the the, the ways we understand that we are respected uh, as an equal citizen. And we see that right now uh, being exercised against this m- most um, vulnerable part of our community, which is the transgender community. For me,
0: one of the inspiring developments in recent months is the growing clarity with which progressive people of faith are finding their voice, and I, I think being heard in this country, uh, alliances across diverse religious traditions that are strong and visible, recognition that uh, the rights of women and immigrants and sexual minorities are always deserving of respect and protection, a clarity of moral messages that transcend dogma and absolutist doctrines, uh, Jean. I I know a lot of this has been galvanized by attack and opposition, but am I being too optimistic as seeing this growing unity of purpose and uh, profoundly hopeful sign, in my opinion?
4: Uh, No, I'm right with you on this. I I think uh, we are seeing sort of the application of religion writ large um, to the to the problems that we are facing uh, as a society and as a culture, um, I I think people are hungry for it. Right? Uh, we we are so used to on, on the progressive side of things, we are so used to fighting with those on the religious right that uh, we've just stopped talking about religion, and 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 now we begin to hear it. Uh, being talked about quite publicly and quite positively, and what has really surprised me and encouraged me and why I too am hopeful uh, is that uh, people seem to be delighted in it that I mean they they never stopped believing they just stopped talking about believing and now uh, it 's as if they are being given permission uh, well what to come out about being a religious person I always said you know that it was easier to come out as gay than uh, in this in the uh, straight community than it was to come out as religious in the gay community Mm -hmm. and so I think uh, we're all experiencing this rebirth of of a way to talk about religion that makes sense that uh, cares about all of God's children and and people are finding that very exciting
0: There are prominent leaders in faith traditions that have not moved out of rejection of LGBTQ persons where uh, the leaders are not uh, waiting anymore to publicly stake out a public position of uncompromising support. Uh, A great example was the diversity of religious leaders who stood together in support of the Equality Act. Uh, which the House of Representatives passed in uh, mid-May. What's your take on this whole trend?
4: So I I think where we are is, uh, as as I mentioned before, I I think the the religious right, certainly if you get them alone uh, in a room, They'll tell you they just lost that fight, right? Against um, uh, gay and lesbian people, they're they're still holding on to the transgender uh, exclusion and and uh, judgment. Uh, but I think they see the handwriting on the wall there. And so, and, and here's the, here's another thing: why why this is changing? Um, the megachurches and the sort of the, the freestanding evangelical churches are hemorrhaging young people. And the number one reason that these young people give for leaving the church they grew up in is their church's treatment of LGBTQ people because they have LGBTQ friends and they know that what they're being told about them is, is just hogwash. Yes. And so um, I, I'll predict that uh, we're going to see some uh, change. Uh, I always think about the Mormons. You remember in, what was it, 1978? God changed his mind about black people, and all of a sudden it was okay to be made a priest in the in the Mormon church if you were African American? I'm thinking that the prophet's going to get another revelation pretty soon, or else they're going to pay dearly for it. They're going to get another revelation pretty soon that says, oops, we, we maybe misunderstood God about LGBTQ people as well. And I think on uh, on other levels, that's going to be happening more and more and more. Yeah,
0: I, I don't know about you, but allies who have nothing to personally gain and, and really much to lose are among the most inspiring people that, that I meet. Um, it, it's a profoundly spirit-filled stance to take. I think... Don't you think that?
4: Yeah, you know what, but I, I would even say it broader, is that uh, it's, it's easy, isn't it, to, to stand up for something that's in our own best interest. Yeah. When you stand up uh, for someone's best interest and you, you, don't have, you don't have a horse in this race... You're just doing it because it's the right thing, because your your faith in the kind of God that cares for those who are vulnerable uh, demands that, that you stand up because it's right, not because uh, it affects you personally. Mm-hmm. And, you know, my... Uh, that's that's the service side of what we uh, it's almost become a cliche now intersectionality where where uh, various kinds of groups understand that that they have something in common with other groups who are fighting for their own respect who are who are fighting for their own equality in this society and I think we're entering a time when we begin to see the importance of um, getting outside of our little uh, circle of interest and and looking broader than that and and part of that is doing just what you say, which is uh, standing up for uh, for what 's right uh, and in some ways uh, their voices are more important than those who are speaking up because they, because it affects them directly because then they can always be accused of of being self interested right that uh, they 've got an axe to grind in this, but when you 've got someone who stands up. Uh, without uh, without that connection i I think it speaks really really loudly and and I think it 's a sign uh, certainly in the lgbtq movement i think it 's a sign of uh, maturity uh, in our movement yeah. that we can that that we 've gained enough that we can start caring uh about others uh, in those kinds of special ways
0: gene the the work i 've personally done to challenge the manipulation of our secular system of government by narrow theocratic interpretations of Scripture, the risks of moving away from a conservative approach to ministry and uh, activism to inclusion and openness. Uh, this work is no less important in the face of the backsliding we're currently witnessing in uh, public rhetoric and policymaking making. But there is a deep feeling of disappointment that comes with seeing what seemed like hard-won progress slowed or even reversed. You faced far greater consequences for your uncompromising message of inclusivity and love. And I guess, I guess I'm asking, do the current obstacles... Make you reevaluate some of what you went through uh, to get to where we are today?
4: So I'm in the hope business, right? <laughs> uh, if it weren't for hope, I'd, uh, I don't know what I'd be doing um, for my whole life. Uh, but uh, let, let me say where my hope lies and where I think our hope lies. And I know that over the years I've said this to you before, but our hope lies in knowing where this is going to end. How, we know how this is all going to turn out. This is going to end with the full inclusion and acceptance and equality of gay and lesbian, bisexual, transgender, and gender nonconforming people, right? Uh, will I live to see it? It's kind of irrelevant whether I get to live to see it. What's relevant is, am I going to play a part in it? And I I have to be honest, I learned this from from the African-American community and the civil rights struggle of the the 60s. There were tons of people uh, who sacrificed, some of them with their lives, to move forward towards... Uh, the full acceptance and the equality of African Americans in this culture. And they knew they wouldn't live to see it. Lord knows, uh, we, we still haven't seen it, right? Um, there's a lot of Jim Crowism going on uh, as we speak. But what I learned from them was that uh, you don't have to live to see the end to know how it's going to end. And when you know how it's going to end, you don't let um, temporary defeats or setbacks um, disillusion you or make you lose your hope. It just makes you kind of dig in deeper. And I think it's important, um, particularly um, as we are experiencing what we're experiencing with this, with this administration, uh, that um, this too shall come to an end. Yeah. Um, uh, so, uh, I prefer sooner than later. But if it has to be later, then okay, that too. But I still know how it's going to end. And that gives me the kind of resilience uh, to keep working and keep hoping. um, uh, All the evidence to the contrary.
0: What other role models do you see on the ascent now that uh, can serve to inspire uh, LGBTQ Americans uh, as much as the rest of us?
4: Well, you know, we of course we see increasing numbers of LGBTQ people in Congress. Uh at the at the uh, state and local levels, it is really quite astounding. I mean, you know, we had all the the women who came forward uh, in the 2018 election and, and were elected, but m- many of them and many others were gay or lesbian, bisexual or transgender. Uh more and more people are seeing us come into the mainstream and and uh, assume our our uh, appropriate uh leadership um uh levels uh within the culture uh, you know it's something we prayed about we hoped for but uh again I didn't know if we'd live to see it but this this one we have lived to see and and they are uh really doing us proud um and so uh you know, we have uh, mayors and, and governors and, I, I mean, really at every level. And now with someone running for president, they're really, any gay kid can believe that he or she can do any damn thing they decide they want to do. Right. And, wow, that is a sea change. Yeah.
0: Why is it so important to integrate identity and sexuality with
4: spirituality? So spirituality is what happens at the deepest level for a person. I mean whether they even uh, call it uh, spiritual or religious. Um, But the thing that happens at the deepest level is who am I? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do with the time I've been given? Those are profoundly spiritual and religious questions. I think that that sexuality is another one of those things that happens at the deepest level. This is why we resisted the language of preference, right? You know, that uh, sexual preference, whether you were gay or straight. Well... So I prefer chocolate ice cream to vanilla. But a preference is, is kind of that um, surface level, right? It, it's, it's, it's just on the surface. Orientation is at the deepest level, like things spiritual. And at the end of the day, I, I, think, it, I think it's a mystery in the sense of we can't fathom the depths of it completely. I think that it is a mystery that that sexuality um, is is such a a profoundly personal expression of our identity that that spirituality and sexuality uh, just go right together. Yeah. Um, and I I think I think most LGBT people would tell you. That the experience of coming out um, has at least spiritual overtones, right uh, coming to grips with who you are and laying claim to who you are um, as a human being and as a child of god that is a that is an astoundingly spiritual experience, and so uh, they rightfully belong together and it 's only only because. Uh, a, a A literalist um, narrow reading of scripture has taught us all of us, uh, including people of my generation who who grew up being told that those two things do not belong together. in fact, uh, God uh, is disgusted at the idea of putting them together and and what it has been my privilege uh, to live is to live in a time when we have understood um, that is just simply wrong.
0: Gene, whether we're talking uh, on the street corner or on the phone or on the air, I, I can't talk with you uh, without getting deeper into your pastoral heart. Um, so let me ask you this question. Uh, what, where would you suggest LGBTQ people of faith um, to turn if they are feeling isolated or lost uh, or looking for uh, connection and community?
4: Yeah, so I, I would answer that in a couple of ways. One is, I think it's important to remember that this confusion that we've experienced as a culture, that religion and sexuality don't go together, um, Uh, LGBT LGBT people have learned as well right Mm -hmm. so like the last time they checked in with religion uh, it was condemning them and most of them haven't checked back in to see if anything has changed Mm -hmm. and it strikes me that that uh, many LGBTQ people don't look at the church because the last time they noticed uh, the Church was uh, condemning them, and um, if I can just digress for a second, back in October, uh, it was my great honor to preside at the interment of the ashes of Matthew Shepherd, not just in in a church but in the Washington National Cathedral and I began that service by acknowledging that I knew and I wanted them to know that there were a lot of people in that congregation that morning. It was the first time they'd been in a church for a very long time and for very good reason because the last time in the church, they were in a church, uh, they were treated really poorly. And I wanted them to know how welcome they were and how brave I thought it was that they would show up. And I, um, you know, (laughs) I feel like my whole life I've had one foot in the, in the gay community and one foot in the church. For those two hours, those two communities came together. It was a profoundly moving experience for me. But it, it showed me, and I think it, I hope it showed the gay community, that uh, they need to check in again because they very well may find uh, that, that their church, or at least uh, a church, would welcome them with open arms. I, so I, I think, uh, and, and you know, the last thing I said in the sermon, I, I, I said, and Matt, welcome home. Yeah. Now, I did that partly because he was an Episcopalian, the Washington National Cathedral is, a, is an Episcopal cathedral. But I think there are a lot of uh, LGBTQ people who would love to come home uh, to religion. Uh, And be treated right.
0: I got to tell you this. I didn't get to go to the service. Uh, We wanted to, Judy and I both wanted to. But my friend, a good friend here, called me that night and said, You need to know this. Talked about the service and how good that was. And then talked about bringing the ashes down uh, to be interred. And he said, when I was standing there with that, I looked across, just straight across, and there was the internment of Bishop Jane Dixon. Mm-hmm. And he said, I knew you had to know that because you and I had one of the best conversations I've ever had with Jane. Right. And I loved her in a way that I can't even uh, express, but not only did he come home, he came home to someone who was waiting for him.
4: Absolutely. So, uh, it's so uh, interesting that you uh, bring this back up. i i didn 't know so the columbarium there at the National Cathedral has two sections, right? When you go into it, you can turn right or you can turn left i didn 't know that she was actually buried uh, uh, you know just a matter of feet from where where we interred matthew 's um, ashes, and I felt so comforted um, To think that um, uh, she'd be watching over him. Yeah, it was wonderful. Well, that
0: was that was what came to me, and I uh, responded the same way you did. Uh, it for the for the cathedral to do that was monumental, and then what you said was so much of what Christianity is about. And then for her to be there, like saying, come on up. Right. Uh, why is it important to make sure the history of Stonewall 50 years on is not forgotten?
4: One of the very few things that makes me sad about the um, LGBTQ community is how ignorant we are of our history. Now, that may be true of other, other movements, but, gosh, it seems to be true of ours. And um, I, I think that this celebration of Stonewall, uh, 50th anniversary, is really important. Uh, first of all, I, I, I will always say, you know, for the 50 years prior to that, there was a lot going on. And there were some unbelievably courageous people who were beginning that movement. Uh, when it was far more dangerous and and deadly, frankly, but surely the the stonewall um, you know revolt disturbance, however you want to describe it was a pivotal moment uh, when we finally stood up and said you know we 're not going to take it anymore, or at least we 're not going to take it lying down, right." Uh, we had to take it for a, a good number of decades before things changed, but it it sent us forth in that direction in just such a powerful way. And knowing our history is, is so important. I may have told you um, that back when I was doing some writing uh, for the Daily Beast, my editor there, uh, just before a gay pride uh, celebration here in Washington, D.C., suggested that I circulate around the crowd at the parade and ask them, did i did, did they think it's why do we celebrate pride is it worth anything anymore do we need to do it anymore and the the younger people would answer that question uh, oh it's just a great time to be with our friends and to maybe get a little tipsy and celebrate so the older you got the more the response tended to be oh, remember the people whose shoulders we stand on So, I was going to write about that. And I woke up the next morning to the news of the massacre uh, at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando. And I desperately wanted to find those same people, especially the young ones, to say, now, is it really all about having a good time? Or is there work to be done? And remembering those whose shoulders on which we stand is an important part of that work. And so, um so this this will be a celebration. It will be more fun than anybody ought to have and it's it 's a time to celebrate those who went before us, who made the freedoms that we enjoy today possible
0: Gene, um when we have a conversation it 's invigorating uh inspiring uh informing. It's always good to have you on State of
4: Belief Radio. Welton, I'm so glad to be here. You invite me back. I'll come back.
0: We need to take one last break, and then the toll worshipping Putin and his war is taking on the Orthodox Christian Church in Russia. You're listening to State of Belief Radio, brought to you by Interfaith Alliance. I'm Welton Gaddy.
1: This is Mitch Randall.
2: And I'm Autumn Lockett.
1: And we co-host Good Faith Weekly.
2: Each week, we provide conversations and interviews at the intersection of faith and culture through an inclusive Christian lens.
1: Subscribe to Good Faith Weekly wherever you listen to podcasts.
0: Historian Catherine Kalaitis continues to offer unique insights and observations at religion dispatches on the religious aspects of the ongoing war of aggression in Ukraine. And I wanted to have her back to assess the impact the holy war rhetoric spewing from Kremlin uh, is having on the faith. Katie, welcome back to State of Belief Radio. You wrote this week that with the war having passed the 100-day mark, we've now seen a notable religious defection. Talk about that, please.
2: Um, Thank you so much for having me back. And I'm I'm absolutely happy to talk about this because I think it's such an important aspect of what is going on um, in Ukraine and beyond. So the patriarch of Moscow, Karel, has been, um, has shown himself over the course of the past hundred plus days to be basically a lackey of Vladimir Putin. And I don't think that's that's too extreme of a thing to say. And the consequence has been, you know, some significant defections, um, beginning, I would say, with St. Nicholas of Amsterdam, which was a Moscow patriarchate church um, in Amsterdam that has a pretty... Prominent place in the Orthodox Christian peace movement, such as it exists. Right, it's not there isn't a strong pacifist tradition, and what is essentially an imperial, um, a, a imperial tradition in Christianity. But um, they they voted to leave after, you know, frankly, I would argue receiving threats. Um, they voted to leave the Moscow Patriarchate um, Saint Serge's Seminary in Paris, which is an incredibly important. Seminary that only recently, in the past, you know, three or four years, has gone back to Moscow. There's a there's an open letter from students asking to go to Constantinople to leave the jurisdiction of Moscow. And then, of course, most significantly, last week, um, the Orthodox Church of the Orthodox Church of Ukraine, um, the Moscow Patriarchate Church in Ukraine. Um, voted in their synodal meeting to leave Moscow, to break with Moscow. Um, This is the most significant and high-profile defection from Moscow. Certainly, it's the most immediately related to the war itself.
0: Mm. For uh, a a religious tradition that speaks um, in in terms of millennia, uh, how significant is that uh, rift? It is.
2: I mean, I would say that I would I would give the response that Ho Chi Minh gave when he was asked um, in the 1960s what he thought about the French Revolution, which is too soon to tell. But um, I think that it is, you know, Moscow, in many ways, needs Kiev. Um, its claim to legitimacy is deeply bound up in the baptism of the Kievian Rus. Kiev not moscow it's the mother city of slavic orthodoxy Mm -hmm. and there is a you know there's there's first the the political fallout which is you know russia is attempting to use the russian orthodox church as an instrument of russian soft power and it needs these sort of satellites all over the world um but there's also i think the very real um some sort of psychic blow that that is if Mos- moscow is in theory the inheritor of kiev um, and to lose to lose kiev to lose churches that have been loyal to moscow you know in the face of some pretty significant political upheavals that is that is a major blow hmm. i would say
0: so what what led to this uh, Senate decision and um, you, you tell us what, what are the real life implications of this?
2: Yeah. I mean, so the, the main, you know, if you, if you read the Senate's decision, if you read um, the sort of comments, you know, sort of rhetoric leading up to it, the failure of Patriarch Corral to condemn the violence in Ukraine to acknowledge ukrainian culture and history is distinct and separate um, but mainly you know his failure to to condemn the violence and his insistence on painting the war as um you know righteous is was the main reason you know the the ukrainian the ukrainian church that was loyal to moscow was in a virtually impossible situation you know, the, the members of their flock were being slaughtered um, and that slaughter was being defended by a man who every Sunday over the altar, they were supposed to pray for and commemorate as their chief pastor and shepherd. Yeah. People aren't going to do that. right? No. I mean, people just simply the the reality is, you know, in the liturgy, in the Orthodox mass, we commemorate our chief bishop over the altar. We also understand the Eucharist in part to be when you take the Eucharist in the Orthodox tradition, you are pledging loyal. One of the things you are doing is you're pledging loyalty to that chain of bishops. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: And when you're asking people to do that, that becomes impossible. There's also the fact that, you know, that the church loyal to um, Moscow was coming under Intense pressure, both from vigilantes and from the Ukrainian government. I think that's more complicated when we talk about issues of religious freedom, but they were finding themselves under both moral, legal and, you know, physical pressure Mm -hmm. uh, to leave. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: How heavily is Moscow leaning on religious rhetoric at at this point to justify uh, ongoing war of aggression?
2: I think Moscow believes that the that religious rhetoric is their best argument for the war in Ukraine. Um, they are, if you listen to the speeches that Vladimir Putin has given, that Patriarch Karel has given, that Patriarch Karel's deputies have given, um, they are the, their chief argument. One has to remember the chief argument of Russia in this situation ultimately is. That Ukraine is part of Russia. Mm -hmm. That Ukraine and Russia are one nation, are one people. This argument is entirely founded in the history of Slavic Orthodoxy. Mm -hmm. And that is, you know, they have to rely on that rhetoric, they have to rely on that history to make that argument. They also, you know, Vladimir Putin and Karel, part of their friendship, as it were, such as it is, is is founded on this sort of traditionalist alliance that feeds into this history. I mean, a very orthodox understanding of the world that Russia is meant to be, is chosen to be this guardian of the true faith and of, you know, morality against a decadent and heretical West. And so... The, the righteousness of Russia's cause are, are really founded in those two principles, and every, everything about it is religious, right? It's founded in this religious history, and it's deployed with this religious rhetoric.
0: The Russian uh, Orthodox patriarch uh, has made several outrageous statements in uh, recent weeks uh, in, in service to Putin, but Russia's not that religious a nation, Uh, Is that a mirror of uh, the kind of religion matters because it says what we want to hear, dynamic, uh, so common on the American political religious right?
2: I I think it's slightly more complicated than you see in America, because I think our understanding of what is and is not religious is really colored by this Reformation understanding of religion, of Christianity in particular as a matter of personal faith hmm. in orthodox countries. And I would say in Catholicism, though, to a lesser extent, because Catholicism had much more exposure to Protestant understandings of religiosity, mm-hmm. um, religion is not just about personal faith, but about communal creed. Mm-hmm. So you um, you hear people all the time talk about how awful it is to be like an LDS missionary in Greece. Because even if you convince them of the truth of Joseph Smith's revelation, they don't convert because the idea is I'm Greek, so I'm orthodox. And so I think one of the things that's important to to look at when you look at a place like Russia is, you know, like things like things that we associate in majority Protestant Western countries with religious faith, things like regular church attendance, prayer, belief in God, right, are very low in Russia. But I would, but most Russians still identify themselves as Orthodox Christians. Hmm. And so that part of it is, religion tells us what we wanna hear. And I think there's absolutely, there's an amount of Russian, like sort of just nationalist pride that's caught up in that. But it's also important to remember that that nationalist pride is absolutely bound up with Russia's Orthodox identity, regardless of the personal faith of individuals
0: so um right now where are religiously oriented peacemaking efforts coming from
2: i would they're well first they're coming from inside russia i would never i want to be very clear that there have been some very brave priests and bishops in russia including you know men who are standing trial right now um for speaking up against the violence in ukraine um Russia has experienced a severe crackdown on religious and political dissidents over the course of the past three months, over the past, you know, year and a half, it's gotten worse, but certainly since the war in Ukraine. Um, And there are people within Russia, there are clergymen within Russia who are speaking out against the war and they're suffering greatly for it. Um, And, you know, I think it's important to note that in the Orthodox tradition, um, Many of our priests are married. We have both a celibate and a married clergy. So th- some of these men are putting their families in danger as well. Mm-hmm. And um, their bravery cannot be underestimated. There is also outside of Russia in the Orthodox world, um, I think a real, um, certainly St. Nicholas in Amsterdam, um, the Archbishop of Finland, um, Leo has spoken out pretty, um, and he is, you know, they're an they're autocephalous church with strong ties to Moscow. Lithuania has now sought its its autonomy from Moscow, naming Kyrielle as the problem and naming the war as the problem. The Orthodox tradition has a very unusual relationship to war writ large, right? So we don't have just war theory, but war is always a sin. Um, there's the idea that people who have returned from a battle should be excommunicated for three years. Um, We have a we we kind of acknowledge war is necessary, but always sinful. Um, Which is, I think, for a lot of Western Christians, an unusual way of thinking about something. But there have been, particularly in this instance, where um, it is a fratricidal war. um, There have been voices speaking out against Vladimir Putin, against Karel. There are are now voices in the Orthodox world saying, you know, the Russian church just needs to be cut off. The five ancient patriarchs need to get together and cut Karel off. Like mm. he needs to be done um, in an, in an ecclesi- 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 ecclesiastical that's manner so. as well. He needs to be done in an ecclesiastical manner as well. Wow. Um, so there is that voice of dissent. And I think that's really important to
0: note. Mm. I-, I wanted to ask you about the uh, argument for sanctioning the uh, Russian patriarch <laughs> that you-, you wrote about recently. Uh, what are the precedents and how... Might such sanctions be helpful?
2: Yeah, so we, throughout the war on terror, and I have scare quotes, I know you can't can't see me, only hear me, but there are scare quotes. Throughout the war on terror, um, it was not unusual for the United States and for other Western governments, and even before that. For example, the Iranian, after the Iranian revolution. Um, it has not been uncommon in our involvement in the Middle East as we fight Islamic terrorism um to sanction religious leaders Mm. with the idea that those religious leaders are absolutely at the root of the violence we are attempting to punish um corral has not yet been sanctioned the eu is pushing i think increasingly towards sanctions that talk has kind of disappeared in the united states that he will be sanctioned just to be very clear in terms of the practical effects of Patriarch Carell's real life, they are zero. He is not going to go vacation in Disney World. But I think symbolically, it is important to say, and I, I would extend that not just to, to Patriarch Carell, but also to people like uh, Metropolitan Hilarion and Metropolitan Ticon, who are some, some who are some chief deputies of his. It is important to say part of the problem is them. They are feeding the rhetoric they are, you know they are whipping up the troops. they are whipping up the arguments for this violence. They are just as culpable as a mullah in Afghanistan telling the Taliban to go kill or a or an imam in Saudi Arabia radicalizing young men because that's what this is. And I think that's very important. I, I think if, if Patriot Karel were wearing um, you know we an Ayatollah, I don't think there would be a question.
0: Well, Katie uh you have given us a a lot to think about and a lot of uh information that we need to have uh what else are you seeing that uh, before we go that's important for our listeners uh to understand or to look forward to
2: yeah so i think the next moscow has signaled um that it may not let the ukrainian uh Church go quietly. They have they have reiterated that they need the permission of Karel. I think one thing to watch is as not just the Ukrainian Church, which is obviously we know different, but places like Lithuania um, start to seek autonomy or autocephaly from um, from Moscow. What how Moscow reacts? I often feel um, that I'm sort of compl- that I'm sort of um, an accomplice in this, but. I want people in the West who maybe are unfamiliar with Orthodoxy mm-hmm. to be aware that there's a conflict within Orthodoxy. And there are many, many Orthodox Christians who disagree with with not just with Perel, but in the larger debate within our tradition about how we relate to modernity, how we relate to things like human rights. That's a debate we're having within our tradition. And it is a debate, it is an active and lively debate. Mm -hmm. Um, I actually next week will be in Seacliff, New York for a conference called Women's Orthodoxy and War Conference uh, with people like Sister Vasa Lauren, um, who are, you know, where people are speaking out. These are, except for me, the women who organize this conference are all from within the Russian tradition. And they are concerned about um, giving a voice from within the Russian tradition that is opposed to the war and that speaks for another part of our tradition. So I would ask people to watch that debate to not see um, the voice of orthodoxy as being monolithic, but understanding that we are experiencing you know, probably the greatest ecclesiological crisis in our history, since the fall of Constantinople, and I would argue, and people would disagree with me on this, but I would argue a sort of religious conflict on par with the Protestant Reformation.
0: Mm. Catherine Kaleidas is a writer and historian whose work focuses on early medieval Christianity and contemporary Orthodox identity. You can follow her writing on the role of religion in the ongoing war in Ukraine at religiondispatches.org. Katie, it's, uh, it's always good to uh, be with you. Uh, thank you for being with us again on uh, State of Belief Radio.
2: Wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to speak with you.
0: Well, that's all the time we have for this week's show. Your donations help keep us on the air. We so appreciate that. Information on how to donate is available, stateofbelief.com. Stay up to date by subscribing to the free weekly State of Belief podcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast platform. And take a moment to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Be part of the conversation. Social media helps connect like-minded people in conversation and company. I'd ask you to share state of belief with just one person this week for whom you think this might be helpful. Our producer is Ray Kirstein. State of Belief Radio is a production of Interfaith Alliance. Become a member today at interfaithalliance.org. And be sure to join us next week for more stories from the intersection of religion, government, and politics. Until then, you all take care of each other. I'm Welton Gaddy. That's State of Belief.
4: Was the son of a preacher, man, the only boy who could ever teach me. What the son of a preacher, man, you see what
3: he was. Mm-hmm.